Jeffrey Lichtman for the brand new Beyond the Legal Limit podcast. This is my first podcast, the first one I've ever done in my life where I've actually done it for myself as opposed to being a guest on someone else's podcast. Now, who am I and why would you even want to listen to this podcast? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm a criminal trial attorney in New York City and I've handled such trials as John Gotti Jr., El Chapo, and other high-profile cases in New York and across the country. I've also done radio in New York since 2006, often uh, at some points had a daily afternoon drive show for a couple of years in New York. And while I loved it, I was really limited in many ways, I found. Frankly, I was too busy with my law practice, so it was tough to get over to a studio every day. But more importantly, I was really restricted by the medium. And I'll explain. My radio career started in New York City in 2006 after I cross-examined another radio host, Curtis Sliwa. He was on WABC Radio in New York at the time in the Gotti Jr. case. Now, I'm going to talk about this trial in, uh, in this podcast a bit and in other podcasts as we go forward. And I'm going to explain some of the really crazy things that occurred in that case and some of the things I did in order to get the great result that we did, which was acquittals and a hung jury on everything else. I was a younger lawyer then and could get away with a lot more than I really could probably today. The laws have changed and judges and prosecutors have sort of wised up a little bit. But what is this podcast going to be? What am I looking to accomplish here? There's lots of lawyer podcasts. You know, why am I different? Why should you listen to mine? First of all, I find that lawyers are, are generally unbearable. They're just almost impossible to be around or even to listen to. And the few podcasts that I've listened to, for the most part, that's borne out. Everything is about marketing. That's why lawyers are doing this. They want to make money. So they want to get in your face. They want to have an opportunity to sell you uh, on them and make money. And, and this is what lawyers have done, you know, since, you know, caveman times. They'll lie about their accomplishments. They'll game the internet in an effort to get you to do a Google search and find them. They'll put these uh, the Google keywords in, you know, greatest lawyer that's ever lived since Jesus Christ was nailed onto a cross. You'll do a search. Who's the greatest lawyer ever? And that lawyer will pop up. Meanwhile, you've never even heard of them if you're a lawyer and you're actually doing this for a living. This is what the business is. It's just full of, of lies and, and, frankly, bullshit. Now, some of the lawyer podcasts I've listened to are actually informative and well done. But as I said, most of them are designed to get business. And I've listened to a few of them. And people are faking their voice. They've got this brand new, you know, lawyer radio voice. And I, I just find it a little bit pukey, if you ask me. But how is this podcast going to be different? It won't be ruled by a fear of me saying something unpopular or an effort to just gain business. I've got plenty of business and I don't need this podcast to bring in new cases. But I think what this podcast will be like and why it will be different is it'll be very much what I am as a lawyer. You're going to get the blunt truth for better or for worse. And that's really how I was on the radio. I, I said what I wanted. I didn't care about the ramifications. And uh, there were ramifications, as we're going to get into that as well. But unlike most lawyer podcasts or TV lawyer uh, analyses, I've actually had some of the biggest trials in the country, some of the biggest clients in the news. So when I speak about the legal world, I'm not just talking about other people's cases. 
I'm not just talking about, you know, as a, as a backseat driver, you know, harumph, harumph, you know, this is what should be going on in this case. This is how it's supposed to be. No, I'm the lawyer that's out in the front. I'm the one who's actually doing the cases, doing the opening statements. I'm doing the cross-examinations. I'm the one where the media is on top of my head. I'm the one where the judges hate my guts because they want my client to lose. The prosecutors want to indict me because they want my client to lose, and they don't like the fact that I've been successful or I've been aggressive against them. I'm not just the lawyer carrying the bags, and I'm going to come here and tell you, well, I was on this case, and that case is one of the lawyers. No, I was the lawyer. And some of the, the clients and trials that I had, I mentioned Gotti Jr. and El Chapo. Recently in the news, Emma Coronel, who's El Chapo's wife, she received a three-year prison sentence in a federal court in D.C. just about a week ago. I also represent Rashawn Weaver. He was a 14, then a 14-year-old boy accused of killing a Barnard College freshman a few years ago in New York City. I've gotten more death threats from that case, that representation, than probably all the other cases I've had in 30 years of practice combined. I represent also presently right now the alleged boss of the Colombo crime family, Andrew Russo, and in a minor miracle result although it wasn't uh, really a miracle to me. I expected it. I got him out on bail on a federal case not that long ago. And this is very, very rare, as you can guess, in an organized crime case to get the boss of a family out on bail. That just doesn't really happen. It never happens. But that happened here, and he's home right now with his family. I also represent uh, rappers The Game, Fat Joe, uh, and others that you may have heard of. Tony Bland was a basketball coach at USC, an assistant coach. I represented him, kept him out of jail. Also, Vince Dementri, a Channel 11 reporter, had a trial with him, and that's going to be probably a show at some point, or at least part of it. That was an incredibly hilarious trial where he was accused of assaulting the driver of the Sri Lankan ambassador to the United States. That was about a 15-second acquittal. Rachel Nordlinger, I also represented for years. She's Al Sharpton's right hand. She worked for Mayor de Blasio in New York City. Uh, his wife, she was uh, heading up her office. And her son, I represented a few years ago on a murder charge, and the charges were dismissed in New Jersey. Prosecutorial misconduct, overreaching, it got the charge dismissed and gave him his life back. That was, again, an incredible case, a cat and mouse game, and that's really what lawyering is about. John Rufo uh, was involved in a $350 million bank fraud case decades ago. He disappeared the day that he was supposed to surrender for his sentence in 1998. That's the subject of many podcasts right now. And uh, recently, the London art dealer Inigo Philbrick I represent. I've represented doctors and lawyers and politicians and the likes. And on, on these podcasts, I'm going to discuss what actually occurred behind the scenes in some of these cases, as well as what it's like to actually try these cases. And I think that that's what's going to make this podcast different, is you're going to hear what lawyers actually think, what they actually do. And you're going to hear it from the horse's mouth, not just somebody who calls himself an expert and opines on TV about it. Now, I do have other interests, and that's also going to be included in these podcasts. And if I just spoke about law, you know, I suppose it would be interesting. There's a lot of good lawyer stories, but there's a reason why I have other interests, because the law sometimes can get annoying and boring. And, uh, you know, beyond the, the law, you're going to hear about my thoughts, and oftentimes they're political in nature. But back to the radio and how I got started. It was in 2006. I had just finished the 
cross-examination and trial, the cross-examination of Curtis Lewa and the trial of John Gotti Jr., and I absolutely crushed Curtis. I mean, it was an obliteration just beyond imagination. It was a very, very personal cross-examination. I would be, I didn't know who Curtis Lewa was other than the fact that he was the head of the Guardian Angels and wore that stupid beret all the time and that red sateen jacket is how he called it. You know, he was an oddity in New York. I mean, that's what New York is, is filled with. But, uh, as a young kid growing up, you know, I was appreciative of the Guardian Angels. I thought they did good work. They were sort of what a quasi vigilante organization. But as time went on, Curtis got older and it wasn't quite as uh, heroic, I suppose, as we all thought back in the seventies. Anyway, I'd never met the guy. I'd never spoken to the guy. I was just John's lawyer, but Curtis was going crazy because I suppose on the radio, he wants ratings and that's, you know, Curtis's entire life is ratings. So he would constantly go after me on the air about my representation of John. This was obviously well before the trial. And in the months leading up, it would get worse. And I don't listen to the radio. I still don't. I don't listen to talk radio at all unless I'm on it because I just find it tedious to listen. I'd rather listen to music. And I would have friends texting me, you know, Curtis is talking about you now on ABC. And I would be in a cab and I'd ask them to change the station. He would just be shit-talking the hell out of me. And it was... You know, it was funny and amusing because I knew that it was shtick, but it was getting personal at times. And I felt, you know what? This guy thinks this trial is a joke. He's using this trial, his opportunity to testify as supposedly a victim of a shooting. He was shot supposedly a couple of times in the stomach and he's using it for his own personal gain. I found that just so incredibly grotesque and, and just idiotic. So I brought a motion to try to silence Curtis, which of course was the stupidest thing to do, because not only did the motion fail, but it just ginned him up more. He knew that he was getting to me, and of course that became a topic of many radio shows as well. But it made me take it, and I'm the wrong person. As a lawyer, you just don't want to get me so emotionally, personally involved in a case. Not that I'm not usually, but with a witness, I was just crazed to discredit this guy. And I knew that he wasn't the most important witness in the case. He had gotten shot. He was a victim. It's not like he had all that much information to give, but it was important to me to discredit him because he was really the public face of the case. And if I could discredit him, I figured that the case would largely crumble, or at least somewhat, because they had a zillion different rats, different cooperators, the government to testify. So what I did is I just dug into this guy, like in the craziest manner ever. I got every article that he had ever been quoted in about his early uh, crime fighting exploits. Now, remember, Curtis had admitted in the early 90s that he had fabricated some of these crime fighting exploits to get publicity for the Guardian Angels. So I just dug in and there was like six instances that he had admitted that he had done this. I dug into every one of these, every, every article that existed and found there was a lot more than six. He just was lying his ass off. And in retrospect, looking back on it, you know, 15 years later, you could tell which ones were pretty obvious lies. There'd be massive inconsistencies from interview to interview. And some of the stuff was just ridiculous. I got his ex-wife's book. It was out of print, Lisa. And it was just this, just a completely moronic 
a self-serving book filled with more lies. And I, I was going to use them as well. And then I would read some of the stuff and he said some horribly racist things back then. And this is, you know, this is decades ago from the seventies. He only admitted to the lies in the nineties and he would make up people that had attacked him, you know, during his crime fighting exploits. And they'd be like eight feet tall gorillas. He'd describe them as now Curtis actually is not a racist. You know, I've spent a lot of time with him doing shows with him uh, for a year and a half. I sat next to him for two hours a day and did a show with him. So as much as you can get to know a, a weirdo like Curtis Sliwa, I did. And the guy's not a racist. It really was the sign of the times, this, the language that he used. You know, I, I didn't think, I never felt that he was a racist when I was with him. But the comments that he made and I knew would be brought before the jury would certainly appear racist and make him look like a complete jackass. So that was the reason why I frankly uh, focused on some of that. Because again, he personally attacked me when he knew I didn't have any, any forum to go after him. He had the radio waves, which is very powerful. And he used it against me, just trashed me constantly. Me, my family, anything he could. So I was going to get back at him when there was a much bigger stage, not just the WABC, but when the whole, whole world was watching his cross-examination. In addition, he, he's so greedy and so dishonest that I learned that he was getting paid to give speeches about the time that he was shot by supposedly Gotti's henchmen. And what he would do is he would go, if you can believe, I mean, it's just so grotesque again, is he claimed that he had this dollar bill that was handed to him by this grand rebbe. Uh, and it somehow it was the only thing in his pocket that wasn't covered with blood uh, when uh, he took his clothes off at the hospital, when they rushed him there to save his life. So, of course, he used this bullshit story, and he would go from temple to temple, and he'd give speeches and just fleecing uh, every temple that he could, Jewish temples. And I started looking around. He was getting paid for them, decent amounts for like a 50-minute speech. So this is the kind of stuff that I did as a lawyer and sort of explains a little bit the kind of person I am. And I really do think that it's uh, instructive, the kind of person that I am, is I fabricated a congregation in New Jersey, a temple. I made up the name of a temple. I got stationary. I had an email address made. And I named myself Hank Greenberg. I'm a huge baseball fan and Hank Greenberg was the Hebrew hammer, played for the Tigers in the 30s and the 40s. A great, great, great player, almost broke Babe Ruth's single season home run record. And I contacted Curtis's representatives about having him speak to my congregation about the shooting uh, that he had and the, you know, the Rebbe dollar that was uh, remaining unbloodied. Incredibly, because Curtis is, you know, just there's not a lot of thinking going on there in that melon. I was contacted by one of his representatives and we went back and forth on email. And I said I needed him to speak at our uh, temple. And he's such a, a huge inspiration to me. And of course, they ate that bullshit up. And the next thing I know, I get in the email. Uh, actually, no, it was sent to a, a box, a P.O. box that I had set up for this congregation, and it had an address. It didn't have a, a P.O. box number, so it looked real. And I get this contract, and they're calling for a $25,000 fee for this clown to speak at this fake congregation about the shooting by John Gotti. And he had done this so many times and made so much money, so I wasn't surprised you know, that he was asking for so much money. Now, during the cross-examination, of course, I have, and, and then once I got the signed contract from Curtis, I just went 
uh, radio silent. I just went dark and stopped dealing with them because I had what I wanted. The fact that he was making money off of this shooting. And that was really the point to show that his credibility, you couldn't trust the guy because how could he tell the truth under oath when his money, his income was tied into it? The story only made him income if he could blame it on John Gotti Jr. and he could make these fantastic facts up. So this really is, you know, the first rule of lawyering. You have to be maniacal in your preparation. You can't be a lawyer who's just lazy and just goes through the motions and takes what the government gives you. It's called 3500 material. That's the uh, section in the U.S. Code where they give you all the witness statements. If you just take the witness statements and cross-examine the witness, the government knows what you're going to be cross-examining on because they gave you those statements. That's what 95% of trial lawyers only use during a trial. I don't. I never do because they're expecting it. They're going to make their objections before, you know, as soon as you get the three words out of your mouth because they know what's coming. They're going to make motions in limine before the trial. That's a motion to limit the cross-examination. Why? Because they know what they gave you. It's the stuff that they don't know about. It's the stuff that they don't have a clue about that they're going to be surprised by. And they're not going to be able to object fast enough. So it's important every single witness that you cross-examine who's a cooperator, who's an important witness, you need to have some of the stuff that they gave you for cross, but you have to create your own materials. And that's what I've done with every witness since I've been doing this. And it's not because, here's the funny thing, it's not because I want to win so bad. It's because I just don't want to lose if that makes any sense. I don't want to be embarrassed. The cases I do are, are mostly all high profile. I don't want to lose any of them. And to go in there and get my ass kicked by some, you know, scummy cooperator, usually a criminal in his own right now. Curtis wasn't a criminal. He was a, a, an alleged victim. But usually I'm cross-examining co-conspirators. So these are horrible people. Anyway, so I'm cross-examining Curtis in the trial. I'm just obliterating him. And it's very personal. Um, just looking at him like I want to kill him during the cross-examination. And no one can see my eyes but him because they're trained on him. So no one could really see uh, how you know ferocious I was looking at him. And he commented about it in the paper the day after, about that I was staring and glaring at him and he just couldn't believe how intense I was. I wanted to kill the guy, literally, on the stand. And I'm going through every one of his lies and he's being forced to admit them. And it just, he was just wobbling on the stand. He was, you know, shrinking deeper and deeper into his chair. Then I go into the whole piece about the, uh, the temple that he was going to be getting paid to talk to. I said, do you ever get paid for talking about this story that you're testifying for free about here? You know, occasionally is what he said. And I said, well, how much do you get paid? I don't know, a thousand dollars, 2,500. I said, is it possible that you get paid 5,000? I suppose it's possible. I said, have you ever gotten paid 10000 for one of these speeches, 50-minute speech? He says, maybe once. I said, have you ever gotten paid $25,000 for one of these speeches? And he's, oh, no, no, no. I said, really? I pull out the contract with his signature on it. I said, why don't you give this a look right now and ask me if this, and answer me if this refreshes your recollection that you have charged temples Jewish temples, $25,000 for a 50-minute speech to listen to this story that you're giving to the jury for free right now. He looked at it. He sunk deep into his chair, and he said, yes, I suppose I have. Now, at that point, the judge called me up the sidebar, and she's like, you know, I don't know what's going on between the two of you, but I think you've made your point. 
he's completely destroyed as a witness. You can stop whenever you want. I asked a few more questions and he slithered. Literally, you could see the grease stain uh, behind him that he left on the chair. And uh, when it was, and I just, to me, that was everything. I just had to destroy him personally. And of, of course, that's immature. But, you know, look, I never, never said that I wasn't immature. Now, when it was over, all of Curtis's friends from WABC were just completely mortified. They were all there to watch him testify because he said that he was going to kill me and blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> Warner Wolf is the sportscaster. He was at the time at WABC. He's actually become a very good friend of mine. Frank Morano, his producer, who has his own radio show on WABC right now, which is wonderful. And he actually watched. They were mortified. They were just completely mortified. They couldn't look me in the eyes because it just was so ugly what I had done to Curtis. And Warner told me after that he couldn't look at Curtis because he had no idea Curtis was such a liar. And the, the funny thing is that when it was over, Frank, and it's typical of Frank, if you know Frank Morano, he thought it would be a funny idea if I would do radio with Curtis. Now, once the trial was over and I got the result that I wanted, for the most part, I didn't have any bad feelings towards Curtis. But understandably, I had abused the guy so bad. I don't know how happy he was about it. But to his great credit, and this is the kind of guy Curtis says, all he cares about is the radio show doing well. He doesn't. He puts his personal feelings behind it. That's all he cared about. And we ended up doing a ton of radio together starting in 2006. And then we had our own show um, as I mentioned earlier in 2011 to 2013 on another station for two hours in the afternoon. So that's how I began radio on a conservative talk show uh, station. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I think what made me a, a decent radio host, is the fact that I had a political stance that went from being a liberal to uh, a conservative and it really started, my transformation really started after 9-11. Now, I was not a far lefty. Let me just say that to begin. You know, I still am and was pro-choice, um, for gay marriage, um, for some gun control, and I'm a, a rabid Second Amendment guy, and I've got a ton of guns, and I love them like, like my children. <clears throat> but once 9-11 happened, I just felt that the country was shifting. Remember, the only Democrats that I had really known and respected at the time up to then was Bill Clinton, who now would be almost a Republican. But after 9-11, I just sort of sensed a, a hatred in America from the left. They were just almost happy that this had happened, that we had deserved this. And I, I just, you know, I was not a George W. Bush fan. And I'm still not. <clears throat> but I felt that whatever, whatever mistakes we had made, we didn't deserve this. And anybody who's rooting against America, frankly, you know, makes me nauseous. So I had basically given up the Democratic Party. And as a Jew, and I'm a Zionist, I'm probably a Zionist, a lover of Israel more than I even am a Jew, or at least I identify. Once Obama came on the scene in 2007, 2008, <clears throat> I was certainly sure that it was the right move never to be a Democrat again. I mean, he was close with the, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who preached against Jews for decades while Obama sat there in the church in the pews. Remember the, the chickens are coming home to roost comments after 9-11 about America, that we deserve that attack. And then uh, when Obama was forced to give up Jeremiah Wright, he said, the Jews are keeping Obama from me. I don't know if you remember that, but, but I certainly remember that. And uh, Jeremiah Wright claimed that the American government invented AIDS to give to minorities. And as I said, Obama sat there and listened to that for decades. He didn't leave the church. 
He was Obama's pastor. He officiated at his wedding. He baptized Obama's children. He was set to give the invocation before Obama announced his candidacy for president. So you can't be someone who sits in those, in those seats, in those, in those pews for decades, listening to that garbage, the Jew hating, the America hating shit, and think that it doesn't impact the guy who's sitting there. Of course it does. <clears throat> in addition, Obama had a great friendship with a Columbia University professor named Rashid Khalidi. He was the former spokesperson for the PLO. He was the right hand of Palestinian terrorist leader Yasser Arafat. And Obama claimed publicly that Khalidi shaped his thoughts on the Middle East. Now, Khalidi is a virulent Jew hater an apologist for Palestinian terrorism. He referred to Jews who would be working for Trump uh, before Trump came into office after the election as infesting the Trump transition team. These people are going to infest our government as of January 20. Now, this is Nazi Germany 101 language referring to Jews as vermin that infects society. <clears throat> That's what Rashid Khalidi is. And while, you know, at Columbia, he's brought over many radical Muslim terror supporters to Columbia to study with him in New York there. And they brought over naturally their crazy terror loving ideas. They dominated that campus, made it very uncomfortable to be a Jew there. They were violent. There were threats and many were sent back because of their violence to the Islamist shitholes that they came from due to the threats they made while they were students at Columbia. And a lot of the violence was due to what they heard on my radio shows back then. They listened. It was one of their classes. Uh, it was part of the syllabus. They listened and they'd come to class the next day because I was pro-Israel. And if you can imagine being pro-Israel and anti-Muslim terror, that was such a shock to uh, these new American students. But I've never discussed this publicly I'm going to do this uh, on a podcast, what happened back then, but I was in the middle of it. I spoke to the president of Columbia, Lee Bollinger, about it, and he acknowledged the problem that Rashid Khalidi presented on that campus. And as I said, we're going to talk about that and get into that at one point, because it's a truly fascinating story that never hit the news media. It's going to hit it here. But these are the kind of people that Obama was very close to, and any Jew with a brain in his head had abandoned the Democratic Party at this point. Of course, that was like 25% of them, maybe, unless they didn't mind being a second-class citizen in their own party. And I said these things back in 2008 on the radio when Obama was running, and it's 2022 almost, and the Democrats are worse than ever when it comes to Jews. The crazed, Jew-hating Muslim congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omer. I mean, how much more evidence do you need to get before you realize that they don't want you as part of their party unless you're a Jew that openly hates Israel? They don't want you. So radio was a real godsend to me back then for when I did it regularly, I loved it. I could speak about these issues besides the law and reach people and maybe even shape some opinions. It was so freeing to me that people actually wanted to hear what I had to say. However, I very quickly learned that radio is not a great place for a guy who doesn't need the job to feed his family. I said what was on my mind with no fear because I didn't care if I got fired. I mean, I had this great legal career and the radio was like they were paying me like pennies comparatively. So I didn't care if I pissed people off. <clears throat> I said what needed to be said because nobody else would say it. And I found that radio was filled with people that were terrified of their own shadows. And I was constantly getting into trouble. 
on the radio. I was a popular host on WABC and then AM 970, The Answer. But as I said, it's a really cowardly genre radio. There's very few people that do it, that have the power, that can say what they want. But you're at the mercy of program directors who themselves are terrified of losing their jobs. So you get the most cowardly radio. Now, people think, oh, it's not bad. This is really great radio. It's not. It's so watered down. And I understand that radio hosts, that it's a source of their income. This is the only thing they they do to earn a living. So they have to be careful. But for me, I didn't care. But I was constantly, as I said, getting into hot water threats. We did a show, Curtis and I, in the afternoon drive time on AM 970 that was on the floor, the first floor of the Pennsylvania Hotel across from uh, Penn Station. And it was in front of a giant window. And they had to move us to an interior office many floors up because there were threats of violence. You know, anything that I would say against radical Islam, of course, caused people to send in emails they wanted to kill us. Now, the station was terrified. Curtis was constantly complaining to the program director, and the program director was constantly telling me to do safer radio, and it just was not what I was there for. I mean, why do it if I'm going to be doing safe radio? I was doing it because I needed to say these things, and Curtis didn't want to lose the job. I understand, but it was always behind my back, and it was always pathetic, just cowardly bullshit, and that's the reason why I'm here, I suppose, doing a podcast, because you can say things here that you can't say on the radio. And eventually, I was fired from AM 970, The Answer, because I did a show where I talked about why there was such a prevalence of child molestation in the Muslim world. You know, not talking about in America, but in in the countries over there. And I explained that I had a professor from Columbia come on and, and explain that, well, you know, in these other countries, they view the Quran literally. And in the Quran, you know, Muhammad took a wife, you know, he's the, the prophet of Islam. He took a wife at age six and supposedly had sex at around age nine. And therefore, people are following their prophet over there. And sometimes, you know, this is why they have these marriages. Ten-year-olds are getting marriages over there. It doesn't happen in America. At least I don't think it does, or at least not very often. But it happens over there a lot because they take the Quran literally. So you just can imagine the outcry. I mean, Curtis lost his mind. He was arguing against me, even though there was really nothing to argue about. These are facts. They may be unpleasant and uncomfortable facts, but they're facts. And I get a call from uh, the program director, Phil Boyce. Nice enough guy. Whenever he had any kind of legal issue, he had no problem calling me and having me uh, work for him for free. But uh, he couldn't bear the thought of getting into any trouble with the comments that I made. And he said to me, you have to apologize. And I'm like, apologize? And he's screaming and yelling. And like this, like I'm getting screamed and yelled at by some fucking program director. Like I gave a shit what the program director thought. Like this was my job. This was my career. I didn't care. He's screaming at me and I'm laughing to myself. You have to apologize. You can't do this. I'm like, fuck you. I'm not apologizing. And of course I didn't apologize and I got terminated. And, you know, I, I suppose in a way, I knew I was going to go out eventually, you know, from something like this. I didn't care. This was May 31st, I think, 2013. The hilarious thing is I never heard from Curtis again. I sat next to him for a year and a half every day. I did hundreds of hours of shows with him before that uh, year and a half period. I didn't get a call from him, not a text, nothing, nothing. And it's been, what, eight and a half years since then? And this was a guy who at one point 
<clears throat> was doing the morning show while we both did the afternoon show at the station, they asked me to take over his morning show because I was more liked as a radio host. And, and it probably was because, you know, Curtis is, is a good radio guy, but it was just the same stuff over and over, over, year after year, mobsters and their lobsters and, you know, all the same, you know, lines that you just would like cringe from. The first time you heard, you're like, well, that's not really funny, but I guess it's original and moolah, shmoolah. And it just, ugh. but like the 17,000th time, it's stale. And that's, you know, really, I think they wanted something different. And I was more outspoken. God knows I probably would have lasted three weeks and they would have had to fire me if I was the morning host. But I told Curtis about it because he had a family and, I, and he had to support them. And I didn't want him to lose his, his job. But even after all that, and he knew that I was loyal to him, never heard from him again. That's Curtis Lee. You know, you take him for what he is, and, you know, I have no hard feelings about it. And I actually thought that he would have been a decent mayor when he ran recently for the mayoral position in New York City, although he's really kind of crazy and he lives with like 30 cats. I thought that the other guy, Eric Adams, was probably too far left. I guess we'll see. But that's one of the reasons why I want to do a podcast, because I'm really not fit for radio. And when I'm a guest and I do a WOR every Monday morning at 7.05 at 7.10 a.m. in New York City, it's just too short. It's one segment. I do it every week. I love it. It's uh, for the Len and Michael show every Monday morning. And, and I really do love it. The guys are actually really uh, good dudes. They're solid. But, you know, I'm, I'm a guest and it's not quite the same as being able to rant about whatever I want. Now, when we get back after this break, I'm going to go into why I wanted to be a lawyer and what kind of lawyer I am. And I think what it takes to be a good lawyer. I think these are issues that are also important to people that are going to listen to this podcast. And, and I want to explain this podcast is going to evolve. It's not like we're every, you know, we're going to feel our way around here and see what works and what doesn't. And that's what I'll probably end up sticking with. But now I'm just going to throw everything against the wall and see uh, what occurs. When I get back from this break, we're going to talk about the kind of lawyer I am, and why I wanted to be one. This is Jeffrey Lichtman for Beyond the Legal Limit podcast. You can find the podcasts on beyondthelegallimit.com. They'll have all the podcasts there. And very shortly, I'll be findable on Spotify and wherever else you find podcasts. I don't know where you find them. I guess Apple probably has something. I don't know if it's iTunes or whatever. You know what you're doing. You're smarter than me when it comes to this. Now, why I wanted to become a lawyer. I was in college and I was pre-med like every other Jewish kid from New Jersey. I was forced to become a doctor, or at least, and I had convinced myself that I wanted to be a doctor, but I was never going to be a good doctor. I have no patience, literally, for people. For the most part, I don't really like them very much. And, um, you know, it really wasn't for me, but I was young and I really didn't have the, the stomach to stand up, I suppose, to my parents. And then one day, well, I guess I was after my sophomore year of college, I was taking a summer biology class and we were all dissecting this fetal pig. This is a true story. And I'm just sitting there and I have no interest. And I was a good pre-med student. I'd gotten A's, a few B's, but I was going to be able to go to medical school if I wanted, but I just had no interest in it. And we're cutting apart this fetal pig and the, uh, the teacher, the professor at the time says, Oh, look at Jeff's, uh, the malpigian tubules in this in this stupid dead pig and everybody look at they're so clear and everybody came over with their stupid goggles on and and they're looking at it and I'm just sort of getting forced out of the space and I'm getting pushed back and like this light literally comes down from the heavens literally came down from the heavens and said to me what are you doing 
This isn't what you want. You hate this. Stop this. Just leave. Just leave. So I left. And I quit pre-med that day. I ended up just leaving that class. I wouldn't go back. I took an incomplete. I had no interest. I wanted to be a lawyer. I was good uh, with reading and writing and arguing, clearly, if anybody knows me. And uh, it felt like it was the more natural fit for what my strengths were. And I often tell the story, if you're a blind man and you love baseball, you can't become center fielder for the Yankees just because you love baseball. You're blind. You can't catch the ball. So you need to find something that befits your talents. And my talents really fit in law. And that's why I decided to do it. I didn't know anybody in the field. I wrote letters out until someone finally gave me a job. And eventually, I ended up with a a great lawyer named Jerry Shargell, who's recently retired, one of the finest trial lawyers maybe in the history of, of New York. And I worked for him for six or seven years, and I sat with him trial after trial and watched him and learned. I would have done it for free. Jerry, he paid me almost as if I was working for free. Just kidding, Jerry, if you're hearing this. But he really taught me most everything. And then one summer... It was the summer of 1995. I had the opportunity to do three trials in a row with Jerry, and two of them were mafia trials. It was during the Colombo family war trials where two factions of the Colombo family were killing each other in the streets of Manhattan and Brooklyn. And I had the great fortune of having one of Jerry's co-counsel in the case was Jimmy LaRosa, probably the other greatest trial lawyer I'd ever seen. And I got to be on trial with them for, I don't know, eight, 10 weeks, like straight, and to learn everything that I could possibly learn from those two great men. And they were completely opposite trial lawyers. Jerry was very learned and very technically proficient, very careful. Jimmy was aggressive and obnoxious, but hilariously funny on his feet and abusing the witnesses. And, and I would take parts from each of them that, you know, rang true. You can't do this kind of work as a trial lawyer and fake a personality because it comes, it comes right through and the jury, they're regular people. They can see what you are. And if they see that you're a fake and a phony, they're not going to believe you. How can they believe you if you're faking the voice that you're using or you're not being what you really have inside you? You can see when somebody's fake. And I took the pieces from Jerry and Jimmy and the ones that really rang true to me. And I made them part of me as, as you know, it, it felt natural. And you had to have a sense of humor, having a sense of humor in order to be a good trial Or If you don't have one, you have no chance. Why? Because you need to get the jury to like you. You're representing people that are usually wildly, obviously guilty, oftentimes. And why on earth should this jury do anything to help you? Why should they help you? Why should they do a thing for you? Well, if they don't like you, they're certainly not going to. So it's important to be funny and be likable. Because you want to follow that likable, funny guy over the hill. You're not going to follow Niedermeyer from Animal House over the hill because you hate his guts. And if you remember, in Animal House, Niedermeyer was killed in action by his own troops. So it's important to be likable. If you're not a likable person, if you're not a funny person, you're going to be a lousy trial lawyer. I'm sorry, go into something else. You have to have an attractive personality. And you also have to get the clients to appear likable too. And I'll give a story from uh, the John Gotti Jr. trial and 
in uh, September of 2005, and I'm cross-examining this monster named Fat Sal Mangiavellani, and he wasn't even my witness. I wasn't even supposed to cross him because he said nothing about John, but the other two crosses really went poorly, the other two lawyers on the case. And John comes up to me after the cross right before the lunch break and says, you know, you got to cross Fat Sal. I'm like, what? He's like, listen, the other two lawyers didn't do anything. You got to cross them for the other guys. I'm like, John, I haven't even read this guy's materials. I wasn't even planning on crossing him. He's like, you have the lunch break. Can you do it? So over the lunch break, I read a handful of the materials and there was gold in them. And my style was different than the other lawyers. I'm very aggressive. I'm not afraid to, you know, be obnoxious or take some chances. I'm not a polite man. I'm not a gentleman inside the courtroom. So I just start abusing Fat Sal during the cross and his taxes and this and all these lies and the, the easy stuff, the ground balls that should have been. I didn't have the time or obviously the resources to dig into him. I only had the lunch hour. And I'm just killing this guy. And he weighs like, I don't know, 600 pounds. And he was likable when he started. He was funny. You know, this fat, funny guy. But he was also violent. And I'm bringing it out. And he's getting upset. And I'm abusing him. And I'm just abusing him and abusing him. And this is probably one of my weaknesses as a trial lawyer is I don't know when to shut up. Because sometimes I just can't control myself because I do have some inner rage and anybody who knows me would, would tend to agree. And just pounding him into the dirt just became so much fun. All of a sudden, as I'm gesticulating during the cross, screaming at him, I feel a tug on my sleeve. Now, we're sitting right next to the jury. The government is in front of us, their whole team. We're right behind them. And the jury is to our rights. And I'm feeling a tug on my left sleeve and I'm ignoring it. And finally, I look down, and it's John, and he's pulling on my sleeve. And I'm like, what? What? I mean, this is like important stuff I'm doing here. And he's like, Jeff, um, you know, he's starting to cry. The jury's starting to feel bad for him. And I'm like, what? And I look up, and the guy's like wiping tears from his face. And I look over at the jury, and they have a look like they just seen me massacre, you know, a bunch of baby seals. I went too far. So I was like, whoops. Uh, no further questions and sat down and the jury laughed at that. And it made John, it was important that it made John appear very likable that he was stopping his insane lawyer from abusing fat Sal anymore. Of course, the irony is that John was being accused of, of all sorts of horrible crimes and including violence. And yet he appeared to be the warm, funny guy at the time. And I appeared to be the massacring lunatic. So another important point to be a good trial lawyer I'll get to that is the FaceTime that you get in front of the jury. It's very important. I don't let other lawyers do cross-examinations in cases when I have them. I don't let associates. No, there's just no way. Because I need to be in front of the jury. Forget the fact that I think I'm going to do it better. But I need to be in front of the jury as much as possible. It's crucial for them to see me and grow to like me. Because if they don't see enough of me, they're not going to develop a bond with me. You're developing a relationship without actually speaking to them directly, but you are. You know, you speak to them in the opening and the summation, but otherwise it just crosses. You can steal some glances and see who likes you and who doesn't like you. So it's important that you get as much face time as you possibly can. And I can think uh, also the other thing, as I said, it's very important to be 
really hard working on this and not just, and, and it's really, look, it takes a lot of time to prepare for these trials. But if you want to just lose every one of them, just take the materials the government gives you. If you want to win, you got to surprise the government. And I'm thinking of one case. I represented this music producer named Horatio Hamilton, a, a reggae uh, music producer from Jamaica. This was right after the Gotti trial, January of 2006. And there was a, a, a very crucial witness against them. Her name was Denise. And I just went to go visit her in prison. She was at the MDC in Brooklyn. I brought an associate of mine with me as a witness. And I just called her down, you know, a few months before the trial. Completely absurd. It was absurd for me to think that I could get away with something like this. But I, but I did it anyway because I didn't care. And she looked at me like, why are you calling me down? Now, legally at the time, I was allowed to do this as long as she was not a co-defendant in my case. And she wasn't. She had a different case and she was brought as a witness against Horatio Hamilton. And I just sat her down. I asked her questions and she's like, you know, I said, look, I'm representing Horatio, but I want to get to the truth. I got her to write down a bunch of things. She complained about the government. I got her to send me letters where she went through some of the discovery on the case, trying to help him. It was the most bizarre thing ever. She's working for the government and she's working for me. <clears throat> anyway, I've got all these letters where she says the government's screwing her. And wouldn't you know it, a few months later, she gets called as a witness in the case. They bring her out onto the stand. She looks at me and she just starts shaking her head like, oh, no, what was I thinking? So I cross-examine her and absolutely obliterate her. You said that the government lied to you, that they cheated you. I never said that. I said, here's a letter. Isn't this your letter that you sent to a lawyer on this case? The judge immediately calls me up the sidebar. He's like, you are out of your mind. He's like, this has got to be unethical. But I was prepared for it, and I cited the case at the time that said that it was permitted. That loophole has been closed since then. I wonder why, by the law, and you can't do what I did then. And I absolutely obliterated this Denise Pinnock. That was her name. And it told me is that you have to go the extra yard. You can't do things half-assed. You just can't. You have to fight as a lawyer as if it's light and, and night, night and day, life and death, whatever the hell it is. You need to fight that hard. You need to fight that hard if you want to win. You've got to do anything and everything. You can't be lazy. And I tell this to people that work for me. If you're lazy, you're going to be a loser. Find another profession because this is not for you. You have to work as hard as you humanly possibly can because you have no chance otherwise. And, you know, look, people that work for me, make I make it very clear. You need to work on the weekends sometimes. You need to work on the weekends many times, nights that you need to be available. The clients are in jail. They don't work nine to five. They're in jail. If this is too much for you, find something else to do for a living. It's not for you. It has to be your life. Now, I'm not saying it's the best life, but you chose the life. And if you're going to do it, do it right. Otherwise, you're going to be a loser. And nobody wants to be a loser. Certainly not me. Now, Let's talk about some other things that are actually in the news. We're going to get away from the law a little bit, and we're going to talk about things that are important to me in the news. Now, this uh, Jussie Smollett case. Now, I suppose I'm more appalled at the intersection of what he did, you know, trying to start a race war with the fact that our media basically supported him. And even our president and vice president, Biden and Kamala Harris, while they were running for president, they came out, not just supported him, 
But they said that they believed this story and they blasted America for being racist and homophobic. And they really did it. They were blasting Republicans. They were using this situation as an opportunity to get votes. And, you know, that's offensive in its own right, is that you're basically having a guy who's, you know, if he's lying, he's starting a race war. And you're jumping on that bandwagon for what, some votes? I mean, how utterly grotesque is that? So now that there's been the trial, and he's been obviously exposed as a liar, and there's no question that he lied about this and he fabricated this, the president and vice president have kept their tweets up supporting Jussie Smollett. And they refuse to even admit they were wrong. So the old uh, tweets are up there. And Kamala Harris was asked the other day, you know, what do you think about what you said where you believe Jussie Smollett and you claim that... uh, you know, he was a victim of, of white supremacists or whatever, you know, racism, I don't know, whatever she said. And she was like, well, there are facts that are still coming out. There are facts that are still coming out. Well, what facts are left? The sentencing? There's nothing left. She was so shocked that she was asked about this. Like, she wasn't anticipating it. And the nice thing is that she didn't cackle, which I thought was amazing. She actually didn't cackle for the first time in her life when she was nervous. She didn't cackle. She must have really been uh, very scared. But, you know, this is the problem is what is it saying to, to the young people in America is that you can try to start a race war based on a lie. You can support that as long as it's okay to get votes? I mean, is that where we are as a country? I mean, I really hope that we're not, but it's grotesque and it's horrible and, you know, whatever. It's it's sickening. Another case that's in the news um, and I'll be in the news uh, this week and last week and the next week is Rashawn Weaver. He was the then 14-year-old boy that was charged with murdering the Barnard freshman. I represent him. You know, this case is just awful on so many levels. I've got kids that are the age of, of Rashawn and he grew up in the worst upbringing ever. And look, obviously, obviously, I feel horrible for the family who lost their daughter. I mean, my God, you send your kid to college and you have to take her home, you have to take her home in a bag a month later. I mean, it's like the worst horrible nightmare ever. I can't even imagine what this family is going through. I've got kids that are going to be going to college next year and it's unbearable for me to think about. But at the same time, I look at Rashawn Weaver and this is a kid that, you know, was raised, you know, by wolves in a lot of ways. I mean, his father was in jail when he was born. When he was born, his father went to jail for the first time when he was fourteen. Every male on his father's side has been in jail. Every role model he ever had was in jail. His mother had her first kid. She was pregnant at thirteen years old, and she was the the victim of a statutory rape. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that he went through. He was in homeless shelters. He had no guidance. His parents didn't stay on top of him at all like I am, and many of the listeners are with their kids. I mean, it's just a horrible situation. So it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that he turned out the way he did. So I considered him a victim as well. And for daring to say that, I angered so many people. But look, you know, if we're all about, you know, righting society's wrongs, you know, what happens to a 14-year-old kid that when Child Protective Services come to check on the family, the mother kicks him out of the apartment? Even though she's on drugs or she's drunk, whatever it was, I don't know. She wasn't taking care of the kids correctly. She was overwhelmed. And the kid just fell through the cracks. So, uh, you know, I, I look at this as there's no winners and everybody's a loser on that case. But as a defense lawyer, I feel bad about it. I certainly do. 
Other things in the news is Iran, President Biden's desperate attempt to get America and Iran back into the nukes deal that, that Trump ripped up. And I'm not a Trump fan, just so you know, <clears throat> but I'm not a never Trumper. I'd support him if I have to, but I think he's absolutely horrible for the Republican Party. But I think he was certainly right on Iran, at least uh, largely. I mean, Iran uh, claims they want peace, they want this deal, but they're currently occupying uh, the Gaza Strip with Hamas, a Muslim terror group. They're occupying Lebanon with Hezbollah. They're occupying Yemen with the Houthis, another terror group. They're occupying Iraq. They're occupying Syria. They're attacking Israel, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. They've attacked our soldiers in our bases in Syria. They tried to kill the prime minister of Iraq. They actually attack, attacked our soldiers in Iraq as well. And all the while, they're claiming they want peace in this new nukes deal. They've already killed the prime minister of Lebanon years ago, and they took that country over and they turned it into an absolute collapsing state. Now, when Obama made the deal with Iran behind the backs of the American people, sending tens of billions of dollars to Iran, at least in the form of cash payments and unfrozen assets, <clears throat> some of that money was used for terrorism, uh, as even John Kerry and Obama were forced to admit. Allies of ours were killed because of that money that we gave Iran. They've taken American hostages since that deal went down in 2015. They've committed terrorism in America. They're recently accused of trying to kidnap an Iranian dissident in America. All the while, they supposedly want peace and a new nukes deal. And they're openly talking about destroying Israel. And they presently pay the Hamas Muslim terrorists in Gaza, which is south of Israel, to attack Israel. And they have. And they pay the Hezbollah Muslim terrorists in Lebanon, north of Israel. They're moving weapons through Syria that's also adjacent to Israel. And those weapons are to be used against Israel. All the while, they claim they want peace and a new nukes deal. I mean, how stupid do you have to be to not see what these people are? And Biden thinks they want peace? And how can they want peace when they're attacking our armed forces and killing our allies? How about just no? How dumb do you have to be to think that this... You know, this regime, and it's not the people of Iran, it's this uh, Muslim terror regime that's controlled them, you know, since the late 70s, and they took our hostages in 79. You know, did they agree as part of any deal to pull out of Lebanon or Gaza or Syria or Iraq? No, they're gonna, that's going to continue regardless. We've come to accept it. Why are we accepting it? You can't have peace with these people. You need regime change. Because once they get nukes, we're going to have North Korea all over again, where you can yell and scream and, you know, starve them, but they can always nuke you. And the difference is that as crazy as North Korea is, you know, they're not led by a crazed, suicidal, religious fanatic who constantly talks about wanting to become a martyr. And that's why, like, when we had the Cold Wars with the USSR, excuse me, the USSR, they weren't filled with suicidal lunatics who wanted to die. They were people like us. Maybe they were communists, but they still were people. Iran does want to die, the leaders there. They can't have nukes. I'd rather nuke them first than them getting nukes. And listen, I hate to say it, but, you know, we stopped World War II by dropping the atomic bomb on Japan. Now, granted, hundreds of thousands, 150,000 people were killed. But God knows how many millions of Americans would have died had we not stopped the war that way. 
Now, back to President Trump. To me, he was an utter disaster. He accomplished so little in his four years. To me, he was fighting on Twitter all day, not reading his briefings, not having a clue what was going on. <clears throat> he picked horrible people to work for him, and they almost all turned on him. And to me, we had a very small window to rescue the country from the far left, but it required a type of Republican president to do it, someone who could galvanize the moderates to convince them, and I'm not talking about just Republican moderates, but Democrats as well, to convince them that the far left was really in charge of the Democratic Party and that it was important that we have to keep these people on our side. But to me, Trump was just a buffoon. Every time he had a good day, he had a bad day, uh, the next one after, by saying something stupid or doing something stupid. He never fixed the voter fraud that we all knew it was going to be coming in 2020. <clears throat> he was more concerned about his personal feuds and, and, uh, and stopping. He didn't care about stopping the onslaught of the radical left in our universities. He talked about it. And on social media, he talked about it. He had four years, and it was important that he actually accomplished these things because they've snowballed. And he just didn't do enough what he needed to be done. Now, some of it wasn't his fault. Certainly, the Republican Party backstabbed him every time they had the opportunity. But a lot of it was his fault. He wasn't up to the job. He wasn't learned enough on the issues. And as I said, he just said so many dumb things. Now, he wasn't an ideologue, and that's what we really need. He wasn't someone who believed in the things we need a Republican leader to, to believe in. He was, you know, constantly crying about people being disloyal to him when he was loyal to no one. I mean, he, he just trashed the BB Netanyahu in the news and said F him to him. You know, come on, man. It's like, do you care about Israel or not? What did Netanyahu do? Because he dared to congratulate Biden after the election? What was he supposed to do? Say, I'm against America because Biden won? It's idiotic. In addition, the January 6th defendants, they all came to the Capitol that day for Trump. They've been arrested and charged and imprisoned. Trump didn't help a single one of them. You know, he threw out Steve Bannon, and Bannon was one of the few people who actually fought for him. Instead, he kept Jeff Sessions and John Bolton and God knows how many more who stabbed him in the back, Chris Ray. <clears throat> Trump let cities burn during the George Floyd protests. He should have really gone in there and cracked some skulls. The liberals had lost their mind and were taking over the cities. Trump did very little to stop it. He talked a big game, but in my mind, delivered very little. And look, I'd support him when push comes to shove. But as I said, I'm not a never Trumper, but I realize how important those four years were to build something before illegal immigration and the onslaught of new voters for Democrats take over and make it impossible for there ever to be a Republican in the White House again. So, you know, we all saw how crazy Trump made the left. And instead of fighting back intelligently for the benefit of the country, he engaged in, in my mind, these silly personal spats, you know, with Elizabeth Warren. That was funny. And she certainly deserved it because she's a horrible person. But, you know, also the, those mental patients on MSNBC, uh, Joe and, and Mika, uh, you know, remember how important those two Georgia Senate races were after Trump lost the election? We needed to get at least one of them to keep the Senate, the Republicans. And Trump basically told people to stay home because he felt he was robbed in Georgia in the election, you know, just before. And guess what? Democrats won both of the seats and now they control the Senate because of it. And that's really all on Trump. Now, maybe Trump was the only one who could have actually beaten Hillary Clinton. It's very possible. Maybe, maybe not. But once people saw what he was, when he got into office, how crazy every day was just crazy. And of course, the media didn't help, but neither did he. You know, that's how he lost to a guy who was basically a corpse. I mean, Joe Biden is, you know, practically a corpse.
This was such an important election, as I said, to stem the tide of crazed leftism in America. And Trump blew the election. Now, it may have been stolen. I don't certainly know. But I, I do know that plenty of people turned off on Trump, plenty of his supporters. He lost to a guy who's been running for president since, like, you know, 1950. This is a guy that is a complete idiot, Biden. He gets caught cheating in law school. He gets caught plagiarizing in speeches when he's out on the stump. He lies about everything. And now he's old. He's not just dumb and dishonest, but now he's like 100 years old. And this guy beat Trump? I mean, come on, man. I mean, you know, I don't think Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, loses that election. We need someone smart, a leader, someone with an ideology who believes in this stuff. Trump's ideology is really just about himself. Now, obviously, Biden has been just a complete epic failure, you know, just in, in every possible way. The Afghanistan pullout is the most obvious. You know, did Biden, you know, even think perhaps we should have kept military bases there? So in the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and God knows what other Muslim terrorists act up there, we'd be able to launch attacks? No. He pulled everybody out. Does anybody really think that if we had our bases there, that we would allow Americans to be attacked for very long? The Taliban knew that as well. We should have had. We have a base all over after we have wars in Korea. We have a base in Syria. They're our enemy. We have a base there. We don't have anything there now. And forget the fact that we left them tens of billions of dollars of our equipment. In addition to tornadoes in Kentucky, over 100 people are killed. And not only does Biden not go there, but he doesn't really express any concern for Kentuckians. He said that it's because of the impact of climate change, as if tornadoes are a brand new thing that only existed when climate became an issue. I mean, this is the sort of bullshit that we have to hear. You know, he still was blasting Kyle Rittenhouse and that Kamala Harris, that cackling imbecile. You know, Kyle Rittenhouse had a gun pointed at him before he fired fatal shots. That's a reason to use a gun. That they have not taken back Biden and Kamala Harris. But Jussie Smollett, they still support? I mean, come on. And Biden told us he was going to wipe out COVID, and now COVID is worse than ever. And kids are still wearing masks to school, even though the masks are hardly making a difference in the spread of the virus. And I just read that one out of every hundred kids, think about this, 1%, between the ages of 5 and 11 who get COVID, even seek medical attention or treatment. They don't even go to the doctor. One out of 100. Don't you think that more kids that get the flu go to the doctor than one out of 100? Of course. And we've obviously been sold a bill of goods about the, the, uh, the virus and the vaccine. We were told at the beginning that the Pfizer vaccine was going to be 95% keeping us against from getting COVID. Then we find out that, oh, well, everybody's getting COVID, but you're not going to die from it. I mean, you know, those are minor details, but I'm kidding. They're not really. And as I said, you know, Kamala Harris is just an epic cackling imbecile, just useless as a vice president. She cackles when she's nervous at the most inappropriate times. And she was picked solely because she's a black woman. And it's an insult to blacks. It's an insult to women. She's incompetent. And now we have a president who's half dead, and we've got a person who was picked as a vice president just to check some boxes, minority boxes. What happens if Biden dies? Not that it really makes all that much of a difference because he's not really doing anything. It's pretty clear that Biden is just sitting there, you know, drooling and uh, sleeping and, and making poopy in his diaper, and that his advisors are running the country. And frankly, we deserve better than that. Anyway, I've been speaking for over an hour. This was really just an introduction show. I wanted to explain who I am, what I am, what I'm hoping the future in these podcasts will bring. Next week will be a more traditional show. 
um, where we're going to have real topics. I'm going to try to divide it into two parts. We'll discuss a case of mine, some of the behind the scenes stuff, and, and half of the show will be about current affairs a bit. It'll be very much like my own radio show without the annoying program director who calls me into his office after the show and yells at me. So until next time, this is Jeffrey Lichtman. You can find me on my office website. It's jeffreylichtman.com. And you can find these podcasts on beyondthelegallimit.com. I appreciate you putting up with me. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.